Question here, go ahead. Reverend Sharpton, hello, I'm Vivek, and I want to ask you, uh, last week on the show we had Senator Kerry, and this week, and, and the week before we had Senator Edwards, and my question for you is, of all the Democratic candidates out there, why should I vote for the one with the least political experience? Well, you shouldn't, because I have the most political experience. <laughs> I got involved in the political uh, movement when I was 12 years old, and I've been involved in social policy for the last 30 years. So don't confuse people that have a job with political experience. Uh, whoever the head of, uh, of, of some local bureaucracy has a job in Cambridge. That doesn't mean that they have political experience and it doesn't mean they have experience to uh, run the United States uh, government. So I think that we confuse title holders with political experience as we have, uh, have seen with the present occupant in the White House. George Bush was a governor and clearly has shown he doesn't have political experience. <laughs>
um, you know, the right wing's getting really upset about ESG and all these kind of things. And the mining corporations, right? These people who are part, you know, very clearly historically like in the wrong, especially when it comes to indigenous rights. Um, you know, we're making a big deal about doing land acknowledgements at the beginning of all their talks and things like that. Well, this is something like Canada Canada folks will be very familiar with this because they mm -hmm. really do the land acknowledgement there, whether it's like, you know, actual people who give a shit <laughs> and then just a sort of general society sort of um, mm. it's like a, it's like a totem, like, oh, now we're good. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really cynical. I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's like going to confession. Right. Um, so anyways, we talked about that and, and Lula and South America and stuff like that. It's, it was a really great conversation that's coming up in a little bit. I know we have a breakdown coming up of our good friend of the show, Mayor Fry, um, before we get there. And I know you've probably done it a lot, Matt, but I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts were on the debate. I know I talked about it on my stream and I know you definitely had to stay in play and watch on the majority report. Um, but anything impressed you there? Any kind of top line thoughts on the debate? My opinion on the debate is shifting a little bit from my initial reaction. My initial reaction was all these people are losers. Uh, I think a lot of this still holds by the way, all these people are losers. Uh, DeSantis is super pathetic, which by contrast makes Vivek look kind of impressive. But I think it could be easily overstated by oh, the same yeah. people who've been overstating DeSantis, uh, how strong Ramaswamy is. But the other th and, and I thought everybody kind of diminished themselves for taking part. But I don't know now. And there's a poll here. And look, this could mm -hmm. this could change. But it made me think uh, along lines that I haven't heard elaborated by city political pundits, which is, you know, Trump is still in the peak position which is sort of the our generic sort of expectation um but he's been down every one of these since the primary really kicked off he's peaked at 62 dropped 59 dropped to 56 and most importantly since the debate has dropped six whole points down to 50 which is the lowest uh um, mark here but also interesting is desantis benefited slightly but ramaswamy didn't mm -hmm. um so a lot of what we're talking about might all be bullshit still <laughs> like, i mean um, yeah yeah this is this is the time of the year when everyone was like ted cruz is going to be the next president of the united states of america right um yeah. but what I, I will say is like our coverage got fucking numbers yeah. like and i don't know if that's just like majority reports bigger than it was for the previous things that's definitely accounts for some of it but there is an appetite to watch these collection of absolute losers. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way that like, <laughs> look, I think Trump's going to win still. And I think he can, he can, he can win with only like 40% with ever going. Like that's what he, I think how he won in 2016. But I think the plus the possibility that it gets close enough to be more interesting and entertaining. I, I'm hoping that I that happens. This is a hot take, and I say that because it's influenced just by these poll numbers and, you know, the aftermath of last week. I think there's probably a very high chance that Trump has to participate in some of the upcoming debates. I think so. Because, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we heard a lot of hot air about, I mean, from Trump himself. Which is a shame way. because his his conversation, his, in, in, like, wild, rambling conversation that he did with Tucker Carlson was probably one of the most unhinged and hilarious Donald Trump interviews I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah. And I could do with a few more of those. But, no, I think he's going to have to be on the stage, uh, well, well, if not the next one, very soon. 
Yeah, and it's hard to know what these numbers because Trump himself, the day after, he's like, "Yeah, more people watched that interview than watched." Uh, was it Barbara Walters talking to Michael Jackson's like, bro, no, that's not how those <laughs> views work. And at the same time, Rumble was all like, hey, actually, we have extremely high viewership for this debate. And I didn't believe it because I think they're lying, too. I just don't buy their numbers. Um, mm. But I do think that like Trump can't just sit these out. It's going to diminish him, actually. And I thought that's very interesting because especially because there is no one. The vague ain't going to be it. Mm -hmm. DeSantis is like dead in the water. I mean, if they can get his ass animated up, I'd be very impressed. No, I, there's like no one. But there is a hunger there. So that's like that's where I'm at with the debate now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, uh, I think I think Ramaswamy is, is one of those guys who is going to crater pretty fast because I think uh, his thing, the people who it turns on his kind of like sny attitude. Um, yeah. I think I think you might there might be a ceiling there. I do think it's interesting that Hale, Nikki Haley, um, somebody who's like, I wouldn't say is the most uh, skilled politician in general, but she was able to carve out a little bit of a lane for herself. But again, like a loser lane, like not any kind of like, oh, Nikki Haley has a shot to win this kind of thing. But she might be the person who like the never Trumpers in the Republican Party get behind um, because she was one of the most hawkish, for example, on like Israel um, and Russia on the stage. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, but, it would be honestly. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say who I want to see climb the polls less. Bergam. I want to see Bergam climb the polls the most. The Bergam um, boys. I want the Burgermeister who just is even at one percent. <laughs> um, I want. Isn't him... he doing one of those scam things with his uh, donations? Yeah, I can't remember who told me this, but yeah, he basically said, basically giving away shit for small. A lot of donations. these guys are doing it. I know. Um, I think the the mayor of Miami is also doing it because they they all need to have so many donors to get on these debates. So they're just Which giving is people so, money. <laughs> it's such like it's a beautiful like example of like oh yeah we're gonna do this because this is this is gonna be a proxy for democratic participation. That's like oh yeah fuck that let's just <laughs> completely <laughs> game that shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man i mean we'll have more well, on, on these as we go yeah yeah i was gonna say speaking of you know um threats and just sort of scoffing at democracy uh let's talk about mayor jacob fry in minneapolis so yeah like you know i have this here folks there's a threat to democracy in minneapolis and minnesota in generally it's not just well i guess mainly minneapolis um but it's not just the minnesota gop which is a problem um am i slowing down david is that why you're uh shoot you're catching um, up hmm. um okay yeah well any any it's when i share this isn't it um it might be do you have it on your computer yeah yeah i have the canva up um if you want to pull up the jacob okay, yeah, just give me one second i'll grab it for you sorry about that well no worries so yeah, Jacob Fry, who we talked about in a, a good sort of primer for this. I'm really slowing down, and I can I can I make it through? I mean, if you need to reset, you can reset, and I can talk a little bit more about. The Maybe GOP. we do bowling, and I try to sort my internet out. Um, All right, that sounds good. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, so, do you have? Are you gonna play the bowling? Yep. 
Got that. Right. Sorry, folks. So we're, we'll come back and we're going to talk about uh, our, our boy, Lil Fry. But uh, before that, we're going to jump straight to our conversation with Nick Bolin. Um, again, Nick Bolin's a really excellent journalist at High Country News. And he wrote this uh, piece uh, for The Drift. There's a link below in the show notes for you all to read it. I really do suggest uh, reading the piece because you know, there's a lot of the kind of politics um, and like the questions about mining and what this is going to mean, but also just sort of seeing what's going on at these conferences behind the scenes um, is really interesting. And, um, you know, maybe to set this up a little bit, you know, there's a, a real question and a lot of different paths that are in front of not just this country, but the globe, right, uh, with how we deal with energy transition. Um, obviously, I'm a supporter of programs like Green New Deal, mass investment um, and expansion of these kind of things. But there's the reality um that you know if we're building out for example a lot of solar panels and and uh, batteries or even something like nuclear what we didn't talk about too much you know there's going to be more demand for certain kind of minerals and resources well that means somebody's going to have to go and dig them up problem um is that under capitalism those forces are all held under private hands who don't very much care uh for labor rights um, for the dignity of the global south and certainly not for left-wing governments in, in in the americas and across the globe um so we had nick on uh, to talk about this conference what the perspective is like uh, for the mining industry and also talk a little bit about maybe some of the alternatives uh, potential alternatives so really fun conversation and uh, we'll be back in a little bit uh, with this fry story yep Welcome back to Left Reckoners, David here, um, and I'm really thrilled to be joined by return guest on the program, Nick Bolin. Nick Bolin's a, a freelance journalist and a correspondent for the excellent High Country News. Uh, Nick, thanks so much uh, for coming back on Left Reckoning. Thanks for having me. Well, you wrote this really um, incredible piece, and I'll just put it up on the screen for folks um, right quick. Um, it's called A Good Prospect in the Drift Magazine, Mining Climate Anxiety for Profit. And we'll have links below for people to go and read the full piece. And I highly suggest it. It's a really interesting analysis. And also some of the stuff you got these people to say to you um, is very interesting. Um, you know, and it's about um, it's about mining and some of the, the kind of pressures that we are going to be facing um, as we maybe make some of these transitions uh, to more green and renewable energy. Um, but maybe uh, to set uh, the, the piece up, Nick, I mean... Could you tell people about what you did uh, for this piece and what the PDAC is? Yeah, so the the PDAC, and I'll, I'll probably refer to it as PDAC um, going forward here, but it is the largest annual mining conference in the world. Uh, it takes place in Toronto every March. And um, I went you know, on, on, on behalf of, of the Drift Magazine in part because, you know, I, from, from everything I've heard covering mining, you know, that this is kind of the, the, the most obvious kind of weather vane of where, mm -hmm. wh what the mining industry thinks is coming, how it, how it's feeling about the market. And, you know, I, I went in March of this year and it was just consumed by excitement about the amount of money this industry is going to make off of, off of the battery metal boom. So, mm -hmm. you know, for, for kind of so, some, some context for that, um, you know, the Biden White House, for example, expects lithium and cobalt demand, other kind of EV battery metals to, to grow by 4,000% um, mm -hmm. 
in coming decades. And I could throw a ton of different numbers at you. Um, but you know, the, the, these are the largest mining companies in the world. Um, you know, it's 25,000 mining people descend on Toronto every March and they are just, you know, I, I can't over, I would hope you all read the piece or some of it. Um, I can't I kind of can't overstate how excited they are about mm -hmm. um you know global demand for this stuff and the and the ways in which in some ways they have kind of world governments in a corner um so you know a lot of the piece kind of gets into the geopolitics of this stuff where you know the industrialized north is suddenly looking at how much copper they're going to need and the amount of copper there is in the world and where it is in the world and suddenly realizing you know we need to lock in our supply chains right now um mm -hmm. and this just you know it's it's you know the when you look at the scarcity there you know these these mining corporations are just they're just going to rake it in and i mean um you know at least in the model that looks likely um you know of, of, of private capital playing a big role in it i mean like i mean these folks feel like they're about to be big winners right i mean that was the the, the vibe at pdac right is like a big almost vibe. celebration yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, it was. And, you know, the mining industry is so boom and bust. You know, I was, I was hearing these stories about like there was a big gold and silver crash in 2014 and PDAC is like this wasteland and everyone's talking about layoffs and, um, you know, all the money they've lost. And, and now it's it's uh, it's the exact opposite. It was kind of a party atmosphere. Um, you know, I was going out late with all these mining guys to bars in Toronto and everyone's just just thrilled there because because they're kind of right on the crest. Of, mm -hmm. of the next boom um but yeah to kind of give you a sense of of the atmosphere the first kind of keynote speech so this is taking place in the toronto convention center um and one side of the building is just this big open floor and it's mining companies and geochemistry firms and um consultants and you know selling my you know diamond drilling you know diamond drill bits for mining stuff it's kind of every side of the industry they have booths and you can just walk up and down the aisles and talk to people and you know talk to gold miners from mongolia is it's really kind of fun um but then you know there are also kind of speeches and, and panels and stuff and the opening keynote was from the head of battery metals at the consulting firm mckinsey um mm -hmm. so ken hoffman he's kind of a big deal in the mining world and he you know kind of ran through the 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 market dynamics and his his estimate was the kind of in the next decade or so an additional 15 to 20 trillion dollars um for the mine in in kind of in increased um uh, on top of you know kind of what what they would be making otherwise um just because of of battery metal demand um mm -hmm. and you know this is the mining world where they don't always have a great relationship with climate and environmental activists but you know the framing of the conference was so interesting where they would periodically kind of refer to like a an environmentalist who wasn't in the room but who probably mm -hmm. would not always be on their be on their side and and hoffman's i quote it in the piece but hoffman kind of wrote talks to this person periodically and is like to fix climate change you need us um mm. and this was you know this is a very common kind of attitude you come across in the mining world where you know they kind of see themselves as the pragmatists of the world mm -hmm. um you all want to have cobalt in your phones you all want to have 
you know, in the computers that we're on right now, which is true. Uh, you all want to have copper. You all want to have three cars, but all have them be EVs. Well, that's the case. You need us to kind of dig up the planet and like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want to, you want to kind of look away from the, the, the impacts of, of, of your consumer demands while we're the ones who actually kind of are going to get the job done for you. Um, of course, the world doesn't have to be set up this way. And we, I, I get into this in my piece and we can talk about this going forward, but this is very much, you know, if they look at expected global demand, they are not wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Just, just kind of bottomless amounts of, you know, we, we don't know how far it's, how, 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 how far this is going to go, but with, you know, the amount we, the amount we need li- just in, in kind of the U S and Europe to, 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 you know, decarbonize, let alone with really large growing populations in, in you know, China and India and Brazil and in, in a, you know, in, um, you know, Western Africa. Um, you know, if, 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 if all of those people are going to be consuming energy that isn't from fossil fuels, I mean, you know, there is a certain sense in which the mining industry is saying this because they want our money, but they're also saying it because it's true. I mean, we're going to need a ton of lithium and copper to, to get away from fossil fuels. Um, just, you know, with the way that the way the world is right now, I mean, these corporations are just set to, 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 um, be kind of the primary beneficiaries of that. Um, and, uh, the losers of that, of that, um, of this boom are well we can talk about that later but um yeah i mean no i mean it's like i mean i think this is like a really important i mean this, this piece is really excellent and, and, and really well reported and i also think you know it brings up a kind of challenge to you know people on the left and people who are like advocating for certain kind of changes that you know there's already the fight with fossil fuel corporations but then there's also going to be a fight about how we are you know producing these things and i want to get into like the like the big politics right both yeah. domestically in the us and international in a minute um but just um you know just specifically on on pdac because one thing that i thought was sort of interesting was you noted um you know for example you know certain kinds of language things like land acknowledgements which in my opinion is a little ironic coming from mining uh capitalists knowing the the history yeah. there um I mean, I'm curious, like, just just on that, like, you know, because, like, the right makes a big deal. Oh, ESG is basically making industry limp um, and, you know, woke capital is taking over. I'm curious, though, because you did mention that this was happening, you know, in a few speeches here and there. I mean, is this something that is meant, um, you know, in, in, in these speeches and these conversations, is this meant for, like, a general audience? Or is this something that the you feel like the mining industry might be sort of consuming uh, themselves to maybe make themselves feel better about their role in the world? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it's really interesting because, you know, Canada, I mean, part of this is a Canadian context where they have mm-hmm. a little bit more of a robust history of trying to include First Nations in mining decisions. Now, including them doesn't mean that the mines don't get built. They sort of always get built, but, you know, kind of compared to the U.S., um, you know, they, they do tend to have a little bit, a little bit kind of more rigorous your tribal consultation progress process. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, it was, it was really in your face, the kind of, um, you know, talking about emission, you know, companies talking about their emissions reduction goals, um, you know, increasing the, the amount of, of women in the workforce. Um, and then all these panels about, you know, indigenous, um, cor- 
corporations, uh, you know, talking to the tribes nearby your mine, making sure. Um, and it was, it was a lot of pat, it was a lot of kind of the mining industry patting itself on the back. You know, you'd have the DI mm -hmm. officer from Barrick or, you know, one of the big boys coming in and talking. And, sorry, not to interrupt you, but, um, like the, the, the attendee, attendees here, I mean, is there any kind of labor representation or is it like that? Yeah. Not, 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 I, I, not a lot of labor in the room. There were pretty, you know, a, a fairly significant number of tribal representatives, um, mm -hmm. often from Canadian first nations. Um, and you know, um, there are a little, and this is, this is just one of the many nuances of mining. Um, mm -hmm. same thing in the new U S especially in Nevada. Um, there's a lot of tribes whose economic livelihood is really tied to mining because the mining is happening on their, you know, ancestral lands or near the reservation or something. Um, so, you know, when, when these, when these tribal representatives are saying, Hey, mining's good for us. You know, we've got to deal with this gold company that gives us jobs. Um, you know, that's something that, you know, environmentalists who kind of knee jerk oppose mining should probably take seriously. On the other hand, the way PDAC was talking about, you know, its relationships to tribes was kind of completely ahistorical because you know, <laughs> the mining industry is probably one of the top forces for displacing indigenous people in the history of the world. I mean, I think mm -hmm. one of the first things Christopher Columbus did in the new world was build a gold mine. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of been, it's kind of inversions of that ever since, you know, settlement of the Western U S as a primary example. Um, and so, you know, going forward, a, a, an enormous amount of these, these minerals that we need are found, you know, on, on or near tribal nations, um, also, you know, just kind of in really poor parts of the global South, mm -hmm. um, in Western Africa, um, in South America, where, you know, the relationship to the industrial North has, has been, you know, um, extractive, you know, from the very beginning, we can get into talking about Chile, but one of the reasons mm -hmm. Chile's kind of has this more robust, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of mining policy um, meant to, be, you know, trying to make the companies pay up and have some benefit for its people is in some part because this leftist government has been elected, but it's also because Chile's been the world's copper vendor for 120 mm -hmm. years, and they've been pissed off about it for 120 years. Um, and, you know, the way that the, the kind of economic shape of this next boom is um, looks, you know, basically the same, you know, mm -hmm. corporations with their headquarters in Toronto or Switzerland or the UK take the minerals out, they leave holes in the ground and, um, you know, the, the, the people who live on the richest lands end up poor again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, um, and I, I definitely wanted to, to spend some time on, on, on the global South in, in, in particular, but I mean, one thing that we've talked a lot on, on this program um, is sort of like what the IRA means, right? And while it's certainly impressive in, in a lot of ways to see, um, you know, some more motivation and in investment um, into, you know, renewable energy or things like that. Uh, one thing that I think is really notable about Biden's plan versus maybe a uh, 
um, a Green New Deal or something like that is that it, it leaves, I mean, not just a huge area. I mean, it, it's very much um, predicated on the idea of like private investment and private control. So, I mean, obviously we talk about how enthusiastic and excited everybody is about the IRA, but I mean, could you give people more of a sense about you know, how big of a maybe paradigm shift uh, this might be for the mining industry um, and its its relationship, you know, to, to the United States as a whole. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the IRA that on the kind of battery metals side, I think that's one of the more complicated parts of the law, mm-hmm. simply because for the last 30 years, the U.S. has been the U.S. and Canada and and, and Europe has been happy to um, outsource the dirty work to China, essentially, when it mm-hmm. comes to metal processing. And, um, you know, between Trump and Biden, both administrations have been pretty hawkish on China. They suddenly look around and they see that 80 plus percent of all rare earth metal processing is in China and more than 70 percent of lithium. And lithium is like the battery mm-hmm. metal. We cannot get away from lithium as of right now. Um, and so, you know, the IRA is just this kind of fire hose of money and incentives um, for all sorts of things. But when it comes to the battery metal side, like, it's really hard to reverse the economic inertia of, you know, NAFTA, deindustrialization, mm-hmm. and, and just kind of the way we've, we've outsourced, you know, the, the, this part of the supply chain. Um, so, you know, I do think you, you already are seeing battery plants um, popping up in the U.S. Um, here and there, um, but in terms of m- my sense from PDEC is that you know people are really excited about the amount of money. I do think that the IRA is not going to be. Um, it'll be really hard to kind of transform the U.S. into this like battery making, mm-hmm. um, you know, giant in anything under 10 years, you know, so maybe in 10 to 15 years, we'll look back and, and suddenly, you know, there'll, there'll be this, you know, kind of manufacturing boom. On the other hand, we might look back and companies took in incentives and explored plans and realized it's still cheaper to do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, you asked about the labor side. I mean, this is the other part of it is that, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, auto workers union has been up in arms about this that um as they should be that that you know um a big three auto worker in detroit makes 35 dollars an hour you know something like that at kind of like a baseline and uh, a non-union ev shop in the u.s it's like 16 or 17 dollars an hour so there was a long twitter thread a couple months ago by um kia rio francos she's a she was a great mm-hmm. writer and, and um, uh, an academic, I think, of Providence. Uh, I'd be getting that wrong on this stuff. Um, uh, talking about how, like, the IRA, you know, you can kind of see the extent to which this is a, uh, an alliance between governments and capital and also a, a chance to kind of restrain labor as we build this new green mm-hmm. economy. Um, so... Um, and this and this also kind of gets to your previous question, which I realize I didn't answer entirely when it comes to kind of the social justice lingo from the mm-hmm. mining industry. I think they know they need to make friends with people like the Biden administration. You need mm-hmm. to have an ESG. Um, 
kind of goals. You need to have emissions reductions. You need to have a DEI statement. You need to have evidence that you're treating the tribes nearby well, um, not out of the goodness of their heart, but because this isn't the old coal barons anymore who can just mm -hmm. trample people. You kind of need to look green and climate conscious um, if you're going to get those IRA money, uh, those are those IRA dollars. Um, but it also means that, um, you know, like with a lot of kind of corporate identity representation speak, um, you know, when it comes to the actual extractive forces on the ground, they're no less fierce when it comes mm -hmm. to, um, you know, building mines in, uh, the DRC in the Congo or in, um, you know, kind of some of these other places where, um, between, you know, um, between government demands and, and companies' willingness to kind of go in and start digging. I mean, you know, a mine is still a mine, um, mm -hmm. whatever the, the ESG statement looks like. Yeah, I mean, well, um, you know, on that, like a mine being a mine, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the, let's maybe start with with the Americas. Right. Um, because, yeah. you know, one one of the things that I think is really important here is like all of this is happening. And, and like, so, look, there's going to be a lot of demand for these things. As you note in your piece, wind turbines, solar and batteries are like highly, um, you know, dependent on significant amounts of of of, of um, minerals. Right. So these are going to be things that there's going to be increased demand for. Um, Obviously, most of the listeners here know, for example, like the history of, of Chile. I'm sure most people here remember, you know, maybe it was tongue in cheek, whatever, but it still showed an orientation um, when the uh, coup in Bolivia happened against Evo Morales. You know, Elon Musk, you know, maybe jokingly or whatever, but it's very cynical and very sinisterly said, like, we'll coup whoever we want, right? Because people were making the argument, like, hey, there's probably a lithium uh, component to this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so could you talk about this a little bit? Um, you know, one, um, you know, some what, what's been going on in, in, in a lot of these countries and two, how like people like Lula, um, how Borch, um, how um, Luis Arce, Arce um, are being sort of spoken about at PDAC uh, yeah. by some people you're able to speak to. So, yeah, we'll start in South America. There's this thing called the Lithium Triangle, which is Chile, Bolivia and Argentina. And it has more than half of the world's known lithium reserves, and it might be more like 75% of the world's lithium reserves. Um, Chile has the largest known lithium mm -hmm. reserves in the world. Um, and as I'm sure your listeners know, there's been this wave of left-wing um, governments that have come to power in, in South and Central America over the past five-ish years. Um, and there's a trend that all of them it, you know, had explicitly anti-extractive Campaign, campaign planks when it came to preventing mining pollution, ex increased right, you know, respect for the rights of indigenous communities, and then some sort of, you know, greater um, benefit to the, you know, mm -hmm. to the country's populations. So this is Peru, um, Chile, Mexico, Colombia, um, and, uh, you know, some of the the news that was kind of circling around PDAC when it was happening was that Gabriel Boric, the president of Chile, had um, they had that failed constitutional referendum, and what part mm -hmm. of the referendum would have included full nationalization of all their lithium? Um, and there was kind of whispers that you know even though the referendum failed, Boric's government might just do it anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And so you know one of Bork's top mining officials is at PDAC and he's talking to this room full of 
like Canadian mining <laughs> executives. So it, it may, it, you had these kind of really unusual kind of cross, you know, cross, you know, the, these interesting people all in the same room together as representatives of a socialist government kind of talking to these investors kind of towing this line between saying like, Hey, like we, we want to change how Chilean mines its copper and lithium, enormous producers of both. Um, mm -hmm. I think top copper producer and second lithium, second largest lithium producer in the world, but also, you know, not wanting to kind of spook all these, you know, cause they're two, they're two active lithium com private lithium companies operating in, in Chile and kind of not wanting to, to scare them off. So, you know, I, I have all these quotes in the piece, his name's Willie Crack. Um, and, and, you know, talking about how, you know, they are you're like, we're, we're not the scary socialists you've heard of, but like, we're also not, it's not just like Chile's open for business. And the interesting thing is, I, it's hard to know this exactly, but about a month after PDAC, Chile went ahead and, and nationalized the lithium. So I, I, I kind of want mm -hmm. to speculate whether um, his mining official was kind of like, like trying to keep trying trying to trying to keep the mining world calm while they were figuring things out, and then they they announced mm. uh, nationalization. And it's not they're not um, immediately kicking out all the private interests. They're giving them a chance to partner as a minority partner with Chile's um, now National Lithium Company, which is a branch of its national copper company, which has an interesting history because it was formed by Salvador Allende in the seventies. Was the last left-wing governor of Chile before Pinochet came to power in a coup that the CIA su supported. So, like, the relationship between Chile, the minerals it holds, and, you know, Western capital, it goes back decades and decades, and, you know, a lot of the political turmoil, you know, from certain views, you can you can get down to it being about all the copper it had, you know, back mm -hmm. then. Um, no, I'm no, sorry. So, yeah. I, and, and then, you know, you're referring to how they're talking about it. So one of the other kind of speeches there was given by um, this, just a, one of the kind of characters in the mining world. Um, and if, if you read any part of my story, I know it's long, you know, go, go down to Robert Friedland, um, his, his, his address. So, you know, he, he is, he's the head of this giant mining company called Ivanhoe. Um, He's he's in his seventies. Um, he used to like he was just this like hippie taking taking LSD in the seventies, and like legend has it, he helped Steve Jobs come up with the name Apple because they were tripping together in an apple orchard. Um, and in his speech, he's just all over the place. He's like making fun of Biden, and he's comparing the mining industry to the Blues Brothers. Um, but then he just goes on this rant about about all the lefties coming to come, you know, lefty governments in South America. And, um, he talks about the 36 year old communist in Chile and that'd be Boric. And he talks about how, you know, Lula's the fact that, you know, that he's a crook cause he went to jail and he, mm. he, he went on and on about Evo Morales, who is not the president of Bolivia anymore. Um, but one of the one of the the kind of underlying motivations to all of this is that Friedland's company Ivanhoe has gigantic mines being planned um, in in uh, the Congo and in in South Africa. So you know, 
part of the message to the audience is like, hey, you don't like all of these socialists asking you to pay up in in, in Chile and Peru and, and Bolivia. Well, come come to the Congo. Like, you know, we've we'll we'll we we don't have mm-hmm. these problems there. Um, and uh, you know, and Ivanhoe his 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 mines in in the in the Congo are partnered with one of China's largest. Um, uh, state-owned companies, and I mean they're they're gigantic. They're going to be you know of the highest like you know hundreds of thousands of tons per year of the highest grade copper at, at full production, and you know platinum, nickel, rhodium, gold, like this all all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff that that um, that's actually in the in the in the South African mine, but it's just kind of every um, battery and rare earth metal metal that's going to be needed. You know, Friedland's got a got a got a mine in, in in western africa that can get that can supply that and this does kind of point to some of this geopolitical stuff you know so in some you know chile has so much lithium that western governments mm-hmm. kind of have to play ball so the chancellor of germany went to chile this spring and basically kind of kissed the ring as it were and said we will build copper processing plants here we will you know if you if, if severance taxes are higher, we'll pay like whatever you need to do to get the German automakers, the, the lithium and copper they need, like, you know, so it's it, to, to that extent, it's working. And the two private companies that operate in Chile um, look like they're going to partner with the state because that was kind of the deal. Like Chile, Chile says mm-hmm. you partner with this, with our state owned company, or, you know, we'll kick you out when you're currently sends. And it looks like they're going to play ball. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, it, it is the, the fact that the, the, the Western African operations, um, you know, in a lot of cases, these governments, not just the DRC, but Zambia, um, are not, you know, have a much more kind of, there's a lot more artisanal mining, small scale mining, um, you know, conflict has allowed, you know, a lot of these, um, the big corporations, both Western and Chinese to kind of you know, have a, have a, have a ton of power, especially China and the Congo, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, that you can kind of operate without some of these <clears throat> requirements to pay up, I guess. Um, and so it is creating this, you know, yet another resource rush into Western Africa, um, that has a long, and you know, obviously dark history. Um, but you know, you can, you can see it happening. So the, the Chinese have, have, you know, they do. They have their own exploitative relationship with with Western African com- countries. You know, lo- signing minerals deals, like often loading them up with these debt deals, um, and then you know mining enormous amounts of cobalt and copper and, and other stuff. Um, and uh, you know, the U.S. is now again a little late to the game, but trying to get in on the game. You know, they sent Blinken and, and Kamala Harris to um, mm-hmm. to Western Africa again just this spring. Um, to try to sign memorandums of understanding with the DRC and with Zambia to try to reroute some of that cobalt and copper. Um, but, uh, you know, the way that Friedland was talking about, you know, his operations in, 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 uh, Western, in Western Africa, um, I mean, it really is just a gigantic, uh, yeah, I kind of can't, can't overstate the extent to which this is a, uh, you know, a new version of a, of the globe extracting resources from from you know that region and 
the benefit to the people is you know negligible you know and i think this is just like there there's a larger point here i think for for leftists or or people to understand too is that like you know <laughs> winning national power is like only a, a a part of the fight right because there's this international capital system and if it's something like extraction or like global finance you see this all the time in south america in particular a left-wing government comes into power and then basically like the financial uh, machine outside of their country is saying, oh, we're not going to play around if you got, you know, we're not going to provide funding or, or investment if you guys do this, this and that, right? So these things um, are, 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 you know, really, really difficult. And I think, you know, when you're tr trying to look at the legacy, for example, some of the pink tide and left-wing governments, I mean, this they're up against a lot. Um, but in, in, in the last couple of minutes, and I know this is a broad question, but I know you, you know, you wrote this piece. I know you think about this. Um, a lot. I mean, it, it seems very definite that, right, there's going to be this kind of resource boom, right? There's, a, you know, a, a lot of money in it. There's a lot of need for it, frankly, too. Um, I mean, could you maybe, um, you know, sort of map out <laughs> potential futures, right? Because it looks like it might be going one way, right? Um, but maybe there's other other models or other ideas out there. Yeah. And so one of the, and it, it is this, you know, you, you could kind of go on and on about the ways in which you know, kind of governments, military power, and then globalized financial capital are all kind of shaping this this world to come, and that it looks like the 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 you know the boom on the scale that I describe in this article that the, that the attendees of PDAC are expecting, you know, that that is going to happen. But it really is amazing to which the you know when you look closely at the just the the way that American EVs are put together. So the way mm -hmm. that batteries are put together in the US, um, the sort of EVs we we like really big cars, right? And they're also mm -hmm. you know, loopholes that allow car company, you know, it's, it's in some ways more attractive to um, build a, uh, an electric truck or an electric SUV rather than, you know, Chevy just discontinued the, the Chevy Bolt or Bolt, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, which is the most popular EV that they've ever made. Um, in in replacement they're going to build more trucks and, and suvs um and to to kind of power big american electric cars um that requires a lot of it, it requires very nickel dense batteries um mm -hmm. and nickel is really really nasty to mine um and it's uh a lot of it is in um uh, indonesia and the philippines and um, countries that regularly have gigantic tropical storms hit them, um, where there's, you know, the, the kind of almost a certainty if you have, you know, a nickel mine with enormous waste pits that if you get a tropical storm that just hammers the country, you know, there's going to be runoff, there's going to be pollution, there's going to be a dam breaking. Um, but it doesn't have to be this way, you know, batteries, you know, I, I cite this study in, in the story that, that kind of tracks all these different development paths and even just like reducing the size of EV batteries um, could reduce the amount of, you know, lithium and copper and nickel demand, you know, many, mm -hmm. you know, I, I forget the exact range, but it's, it's like a pretty significant percentage of demand could be cut into. And if you combined that with more walkable cities, better public transit, um, you know, we could really cut into the amount of this stuff that we need to dig out of the ground. Um, let alone their uh, Chinese EVs, the EVs that tend, mm -hmm. tend to tend to be purchased and um, are used in China. Um, 
have this is getting to the limits of my like biochemistry <laughs> here um <laughs> but use the 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 battery setup um is much less nickel dense so you could even have different kinds of batteries that would need smaller cars um but that that wouldn't um wouldn't be quite so harmful um you know going going kind of all the way up the supply chain um and um you know i i uh I, I am pulling this up here, but that, um, you know, the, the study that I cite, you could, you could cut into U.S. lithium demand by 2050 by 42% if you had all these various combinations of uh, smaller EV batteries, denser cities, battery recycling, um, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of puts the kind of 100% recycling, getting everything back in the system. Um, but, you know, that's, that's not the way things are going right now. Um, again kind of on this esg point all the battery all the car makers and all the mining companies at pdackles say all the right things about battery recycling but um you know they make money by with increasing yeah. and, and building new mines mm -hmm. um and you know that's that's the real excitement in the room and if you know it was kind of interesting the way in which that esg stuff would be you would have panels about that um and then if you go into a into another room, then it's just, you know, it's just investors talking dollars and cents. So you mm -hmm. do get that, like, this is the sort of stuff we have to say, but in terms of reducing the size of EB batteries, like everything's going, every, all the arrows are pointing. Up. And well, um, Nick, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and the piece, the piece is a good prospect, uh, mining climate anxiety, um, for, for profit in the drift magazine. There'll be links below, um, for people to check it out. And again, brother, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. It's good to, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. job david thanks man no, it's really it's really it's a great piece people should definitely check out on the drift magazine link below in the show notes if if uh if you need it i mean i think like being able to reckon with uh you know some of the difficult <laughs> challenges and realities here um and also like you know i mean like this is a massive issue i mean you know think about what happened with amlo when he said that there's going to be a national stake in the lithium a production in, in the country of Mexico. I mean, the freak out, even in the New York Times, right? It's always amazing how liberals like act like, oh, we're above the old days of American imperialism. And then it's like, oh, yeah, crazy authoritarian AMLO. I mean, you know, um, I don't really love business, but he's probably not going to be doing something good with it. Well, why do you think that these nasty Canadian companies are going to be doing something nicer uh, with Mexico's lithium? Why are we even having that conversation? So, you know, and, uh, you know, dealing with that, particularly, um, you know, in the question of lithium for people who, you know, push for super high solar and, and battery usage. I mean, this is some of the realities that we're going to sort of run up against. I know, man. And it's all to, and this is why I don't like just credit. I don't like the just simple, even if he wasn't an edgelord, the simple crediting of Elon for the so-called so democratization of Persolubule. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be great to have really efficient cheap personal personal automobiles but i also think and i think a lot more people agree more and more that it'd be nicer to have like really good public transportation 
Yeah. I mean, generally, I think, you know, taking into consideration like what we need to be doing and what we should be sort of focusing on is important. I mean, I do think that like we should be able to, you know, explore lots of different options. And remember that, you know, it's like oftentimes not like a lot of these things are like, oh, well, you know, consumers pick this or that. You know, but a lot of times those choices are sort of constrained and designed to look a certain way. I mean, look at automobile ownership. I mean, look, look, I'm somebody who loves, you know, like having a vehicle, right? That, that the freedom that you get, the ability to move around is great. Um, there's also times I wish, you know, I had better public transit options. That's right. I support it here. Um, you know, and like, anyways, these are going to be some of the thorny questions that we have to rub up against. The problem is we're not anywhere near, uh, you know, the driver's seat, forgive the metaphor of these right. kind of things. And in the meantime, right. So even if, okay. So, you know, in, in the moment we're just like, okay, we have these things that we advocate for. So, okay, well, um, Capital looks like it's about to invest in a lot of lithium production. What is that going to look like? And what do we need to be sort of prepping our comrades around the world for? What do we need to be doing internally? I mean, all the fights in this country about how EVs are being produced as a way to sort of break union labor in the UAW, right? For people who don't know this story, it's because the big three are building out new plants and saying, oh, well, an electric vehicle. Um, that's different than a combustion engine. So actually, we don't think that the union contracts that we negotiate with the UAW play in this arena, right? And this is a huge fight that's going on right now, right? So there's all these things that are going to be going on that we have to be able to do two things, right? Advocate for the future that we want, the things that we want, um, and also be able to play ball uh, today and and recognize some of the pitfalls, problems. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, it's times even compromises that might have to be made. Yeah. Folks, let's do this Jacob Fry story. So we talk a lot about threats to democracy, and I genuinely think, for instance, the Minnesota GOP is an absolute threat to democracy. With If given full control of the state of Minnesota, I think it'd be very bad. <laughs> uh, do not like those guys. I think they're fascists. That said... We have a little guy named Jacob Fry who is uh, making the rounds, getting some positive press for some things related to housing. And it it set me off. So let's talk about threats to democracy. And I'll just say I did choose this because it was a suggested picture. But um, (laughs) (laughs) there's our boy Jacob Fry. Um, uh, Left Reckoning 85. Um, and I'm going to stop sharing this. I might have to have you bring this up. Clearly, that's a problem for uh, this. Um, but in Left Reckoning 85 and with uh, the earlier uh, discussion with GP Jacob, uh, we talked about Jacob Fry is sort of the prototypical neoliberal Democrat mayor. Mm-hmm. Young. He does like TikTok dances sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played those on the show. Exactly. Including, uh, you know, that was with uh, supporters of uh, Latricia Vita, who we'll hear from. So, yeah, here's our boy. Um, and if you just go to the next one, what's, what prompted me on this is I saw this today and it drove me insane. Mm-hmm. Kate Willard, I think, tweeted this out. But this is a, a quote tweet of a guy named Connor Sen, who's uh, a, another guy whose politics I don't like. This, but like this sort of neoliberal type of Democrat. Mm-hmm. With construction loan rates where they are, I wouldn't expect much multifamily construction on the West Coast, even if Yimbies are winning lots of political fights. And this Yimby quote tweets at and says, four things have to line up for new housing to be built. Let's see. I wonder what's left out of here. Um, but um, one, zoning slash entitlements. Two, construction costs. Three, interest rates. Four, rents. 
And then he goes with two and three increasing, no indica and no indication of coming back down. Dot dot dot. We will unfortunately have to wait for rents to increase. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say, like that is exactly my problem with all these guys is how little they incorporate into their philosophy, as a, as a Shakespeare says. Was, like, yes, we could actually just start building this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, like, this is obvious. Like, why? Why? How impoverished are our imaginations in terms of policy that we can't think of anything but oh well, I guess we got to feed the rentiers. From the people who are already squeezed. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, I mean it's like you know, and maintain a, a certain system of of, of power, which um, you know, it's not just like oh, we're talking like a Foucauldian sense, oh, like power, right? We're talking about if you are somebody who derives your wealth from extracting value from renters, well, what's the thing that you want to see happen as much as possible? Hmm. You want to see those rents go up. As long as those things are controlled by private interest, there's always going to be an upward pressure on rents. And um, I, I, I don't want to interrupt your, your segment, so uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But that's why you sort of have to push back on that kind of thing. And there's no kind of one quick trick um, to, to the housing crisis that unfortunately I think a lot of people have sort of fallen into. But let's yeah. see where this goes. So let's take a sidebar and look how Mayor Fry dealt with the Uber Lyft thing recently. If you go to this next page, which is by the Sahan Journal, which I recommend anybody in following Minneapolis politics, um, they take a look at. It's there's, there's really great coverage of this stuff. But uh, Mayor Fry vetoes Minneapolis rideshare ordinance, announces changes for Uber drivers. Uh, and basically, you know, to do some quotes uh, from uh, Rhonda, uh, Robin Wansley, who was a former guest on this program, the independent socialist on the city council. This veto is inexcusable betrayal of Minneapolis workers. The ordinance was developed over eight months with consultation of drivers, city staff and national experts. As a councilman member, Jacob Fry voted to approve a $15 minimum wage, but evidently he is ready to abandon any commitment to living wages uh, and uh, uh, Eid Ali, uh, Eid Ali, just remember the name, e, uh, the word Eid, because that's going to come up later. But Eid Ali, this, uh, president who is the president of the Minnesota Uber Lyft Drivers Association, told Sahan Journal that Tuesday's news was disappointing given how much effort drivers put into getting the ordinance passed. It's a little bit of a gray day for thousands of families who were expected a different outcome, but it is what it is. And we are going to work on some alternatives that we have ahead of us. Let me just go to the next one, David. Um, shout out to Jason Chavez, who said Mayor Fry's veto is a slap in the face to thousands of workers in Minneapolis. As council members, our job isn't to count on pinky promises from multi-billion dollar corporations that they'll do the right thing. Our job is to make laws that guarantee workers can earn a living wage. And if you just go to the next one, uh, that's what um, mayor the mayor has done. Basically get from... And not even from Lyft, just from Uber says, that, yeah, we're going to try to get you to uh, $15. Lyft spokesperson CJ Macklin said, by attempting to jam through this deeply flawed bill in less than a month, it threatened to the rideshare operating within the city. We support a minimum earnings downwork for drivers, but it should be part of a broader framework that balances the needs of riders and drivers. I just wanted – that is a company mm. lying to you. There, th this, There's like, an omission oh, there. Yeah, we're just here for the riders and the customers. And if we could just, these guys, they're fighting all the time. And it's like, oh, I don't know which one of the kids I want to give ice cream to. <laughs> they need surplus value from this whole operation so they can pay the investors who have sunk mm. money into these things and the lobbying efforts for them uh, so that they can 
yeah, monopolize these industries uh, and draw that money back on the backs of underpaid workers in these areas. And they threatened, and this is the second time there's been vetoes on this in Minnesota. First, Governor Walls did it after a state senator, I can't remember, uh, Fate, um, uh, who's apparently um, uh, promising future state action on this but walls vetoed that during his when we were going to try to be like oh look at walls getting the thing done and then the second one of these these industries says actually that doesn't work for us at all uh these executives which even progressive and i think walls is better than fry for what it's worth whatever but like they're still going to kowtow to what the industry says so Mm -hmm. that brings us to this news story and Fry has been getting positive press uh, from Bloomberg here, uh, which um, talks about the first American city to tame inflation owes its success to affordable housing. Now I want to just put, say up front to the Yimbies, I am not someone saying, Hey, hands off single family <laughs> exclusive uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, zoning. I mean, I feel like we even might've mentioned that in that, um, discussion of the city councilors talking about last time, but like I am pro generic reform of this, but we need to keep an eye on how this is being used by the people that are actually um, controlling politics right now. So this story, first American city tame inflation, no place has put, and this is all good stuff, you know, generally speaking, no place in in the U.S. has put in, inflation in the rearview mirror quite as fast as Minneapolis. Uh, blah, blah, blah. That's largely due to a region-wide push to address one of the most intractable issues, both uh, the Fed and American consumers, right? For both the Fed and American consumers, rising housing costs. Well before pandemic-related supply chain snarls and labor shortages roiled the economy, the city of Minneapolis eliminated zoning that allowed only single-family homes and since 2018 has invested $320 million for rental assistance and subsidies. That is all good. Jacob Fry, if, you, if this was all you could ever do, it's something, man. Um, that helped unleash a boom of construction in apartments and condos in the region that provided proved to be a powerful antidote against inflation, given that the cost of the sh- of shelter accounts for more than a third of overall U.S. price index. Minneapolis shelter prices were up uh, a half at the nation's annual price in May, and you know Fry gloats a little bit at the end of this. There are oh, some yeah. things to uh, keep in mind, though. You can move to the next slide. Um, is so and this is all a part of this minneapolis 2040 project and i think look spending 320 million dollars on rent subsidies that's better than not doing that um and Mm -hmm. totally but like we need to keep an eye on also who this is affecting and this is a very raced dynamic in minneapolis 49 percent of all households in minneapolis are cost burden it's not equal across groups uh still high for even white people i will say mm-hmm. um uh, over 50 percent of black households over 45 percent of american indian and hispanic households in minneapolis are cost burden whereas one in three white households are cost burden and a lot of those are um I think like there's a lot of like you know Ilhan Omar Somali population and the other thing that I do think we need to keep in mind before you know Jacob Fry saying a lot of people were expecting gentrification none of that's happened. You go to the next slide here and I think this is a pretty important sort of thing to keep in mind is Minneapolis is one of these city states that has lost citizens. It lost citizens mm-hmm. in 2022. That has an impact on housing, right? These these states that have a lot of people moving into it, that's mm-hmm. causing a lot of inflation. So 
again, like I've, I'll take the 320 million in rent subsidies and the improved zoning, but let's not count our eggs before they hatch. And then we get to the real divide here, which is that this idea that, oh, hey, I support this and I support that. There is a conflict uh, here. And you can skip the GP Jacob thing. That's just, uh, yeah, it led for 85 where we talked about. People should definitely Jacob. watch it though. GP Jacob is awesome. Really good. Um, this is where it gets dark. What happened to rent control in Minneapolis? Uh, this is by Roshan Abraham in uh, City. Uh, I can't remember what the. Uh, in Backyard. Backyard. Oh, Next City. Yeah. Um, and just to read this head, head here. And, you know, this is how fundamentally. Well, they, they, he just lights out here. When Minneapolis voters went to the ballot box in November 2021 and with a 53% majority empowered their city council to draft a rent control ordinance, they may have expected what ordinance, that ordinance to be ready for their approval by now. But two years later, the earliest that a rent regulating policy could be back before voters but two years later, the earliest that a rent regulating policy could be back before voters is in 2024. Implementation, implementation would be even further down the line. That's because on June 28th, a winding uh, rent control saga in the Twin Cities took its most recent turn at a city council meeting held during Eid al-Adha, wherein three Muslim council members were absent for the religious holiday. The council voted five to four not to advance the draft ordinance to committee. A procedural hurdle that means a ballot proposal cannot go before voters this November as, as some had hoped. The three absent council members, Jeremiah Ellison, Jamal Osman, and Ashita Shugtai, are all supporters of rent control. Shugtai and Osman wrote the rent control policy Jesus. in question based on a working group's recommendations. Their presence at the meeting would have assured that the policy advanced to the next stage in the process. Um, and we have some reaction on the next one here. Oh, and yeah, so you know that, and and the uh, you have these different folks who are basically like, look, it's we had to continue the business, and that's not the case. They could have postponed and waited uh, for the full council to get there. So it's just uh, chicken shit. Now, ultimately, they would have needed nine. I think to get mm. it onto the ballot in 2020 uh, this year. So I think, and, and so they would have needed one of the people that decided like, yeah, let's vote over the uh, uh, absent Muslims uh, that are gone for religious reasons. Let's go over there. So I, I don't think you would have probably got one of them, but I mean, disgusting. Right. And mm. I mean, and anti-democratic um, because as, as yeah, we'll just uh, put this up here. Um, uh, council member Latricia Vita. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I don't have much of the reaction um, from the representatives, but they're like, yeah, like uh, our constituents like wanted us to do this. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. th this is this is I mean, come on. Let's like let's not, let's not miss this for yeah. a second. I mean, it's absolutely cynical to do what just happened here. Right. Absolutely. I mean, like what, the, what it's about is is really important. But I mean, that is fundamental anti-democratic nonsense. Um, yes. To sit here and say, you know, for a minority religion, right? So they those, those aren't necessarily always going to be federal holidays or non-work days. Um, to try to push through something, knowing that a certain segment of of, of the working population, the people who are working um, in, in government with you, aren't going to be present. And that's going to give you numerical advantage, right? So yeah. some people have to choose between being able to practice their faith, their religion, um, or to see some of the most sinister, cynical kind of policies um, you know, happen in, in, in the city of Minneapolis. I mean, that is some really wicked, evil shit. 
it uh, really that happen is in just... a city that prides itself generally on being very progressive and open to lots of different people. And guess what? Like the the distribution of that skews poor and non-white of the mm-hmm. of the people that have been disenfranchised there. So like not only like. Uh, uh, we talked with Chippy Jacob, like electorates are conservative in general. And then you're just going to completely say, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's really despicable, even if it wasn't, like you said, for uh, uh, like a, a, such an important policy to their constituents that they mm-hmm. support, that they pass an ordinance for. And I, you know, I mentioned, and I'm not going to play it, but Jacob Fry doing TikTok dances. And that was, and look, if he was doing that and he was supportive of rent control, <laughs> Yeah. That that the the aesthetics of that are entirely different, but he's he that was actually with this uh, council member Latricia Vita here, who has been uh, rumored as maybe an APEC uh, tap for challenging Ilhan Omar. But council member Latricia Vita was even more strongly opposed. Rent control has not helped anywhere. It's not That's a not thing. True. It's not going to work in this city. We have work to do. Vita said in the June meeting. She also said rent control would stop the building of housing. Now this is important. And this is what's got the fear in some of these uh, squishes. And it's important to address this. Uh, would stop the building of housing, echoing concerns that Minneapolis would face similar issues as St. Paul. St. Paul voters approved a rent control ordinance in November 2021 with a 3% annual cap on rent increases and no exemption for new construction. Very strict. The voters passed this. It followed a study from the University of Minnesota Center for Urban and Regional Affairs showing that rent control policies did not lead uh, to limits on new construction, but could lead to landlords converting apartments into condos and removing them from the rental market. Um, so, uh, the St. Paul law went into effect May 1st, 2022 with significant loopholes that allowed landlords to raise rents by up to 8% only by, quote, self-certifying that their costs had risen, with those certifications only selectively audited as, as Next City reported last year. Landlords could also raise rents between 8 to 15% with a more rigorous review from the city. The St. Paul law still allowed landlords to raise rents higher than the city's 20-year average annual rent increases but developers some of whom openly opposed the law pulled building permits saying that they could not get construction financing with the rent control law in place and this is the important paragraph the decrease was sharp with hud estimating that there was a 48 percent decrease in building uh, permits in 2022 from the year prior but hud's data also showed that the slowdown began in june 2021 more than a year before uh, St. Paul's rent control policy was implemented and 11 months before the November 2021 vote. This suggests that developers pulling permits were reacting to the perception of the rent control policy rather than its impact. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I think, a pretty important thing. And that, that actually tracks with what GP Jacob and I said, which is that like, look, I support, like, obviously I support rent control. We need to actually be affirmatively producing housing for people because it's not just going to happen with the, 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 like, unless like developers, like, like it's not just going to happen on its own. Right. Like clearly. And I think that's why, like, that's why it's so frustrated with that Bloomberg piece. That's giving Fry a lot of shine about this. Cause I think that's propaganda because mm-hmm. I don't think you can draw that kind of strong inference. Minnesota has never had super high housing prices. So just to credit it all for this minor reform, Meanwhile, you have him doing this type of shit, disenfranchising people who want rent control um, is, you know, such a, is a huge problem. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And like, let's, let's, let's talk about like two quick things here. Um, one, there's a fancy word for what that is. Um, what, yep. what you're just talking about with, uh, with builders, not building, um, not because of any economic reasoning, but actually just because of what they're calling the perceived, no, that's what's, what that's called is called a capital strike. And what a capital strike is, is the ability of people with money to be able to withhold investment to get the certain kind of policies that they want. This happens not just all across the country. This happens all across the world. Um, where there are forces out there that are trying to break down um, and um, attack democracy. Um, because here's the thing about rent control, right? And I know we might want to talk about some international examples in a second, Matt. Rent control works. Um, there's a great piece. I'll pull it up really fast. Um, there's a great piece by J.W. Mason, which y'all can read to get like the full details of this um, in Jacobin Magazine which breaks down why rent control works as a policy. Um, neoliberals are wrong. Rent control protects tenants, it is good for the housing market, promotes lively cities, and reduces one of the biggest sources of rising inequality today. 100% true. Um, and again, people should read the entirety of, of the article, but let's just go here really fast. Um, a number of recent studies have looked at the effects of rent regulations on housing supply, focusing on changes in rent regulations in New Jersey and California and the elimination of rent control in Massachusetts. Contrary to the predictions of the simple supply and demand model, none of these studies have found evidence that introducing or strengthening rent regulations reduces new housing construction or that eliminating rent regulation increases construction. Uh, most of these studies do, however, find that rent control is effective at holding down rents. Because here's the thing, there is a fundamental reality here um, that uh, rent housing is something that um, is a good that there is always going to be a need for. As long as you have people living in a the city, there's going to be a need for housing, right? What capitalists do right now is they try to hold the market, they try to hold cities, they try to hold localities um, hostage, and they make these kind of arguments, and they even sometimes do cynical moves like this to say, we're not going to invest in something for political reasons, not for economic ones, right? Um, but rent control as a policy um, works tremendously well at protecting the bottom line of working and middle-class Americans. Um, and you know what doesn't work, despite all of the yimby nonsense about it, is building a bunch of luxury housing for the rich. That does not trickle down uh, to the rest of us. It has been disproven time and time again. And they continue using this kind of very, like, you know, classroom level economics, right? The kind of economics that libertarians love to use, right? That is not reflective of the world or of reality, but it's just, so. Oh, look, this number goes up, that number goes down, right? That's how the economics works. No, it's not, right? Because it misses the political economy here. If you have a strong state, if you have a strong government that says, hey, look, this is what um, we're going to have people pay. We're not going to allow you to make constant increases and in all, all all these kind of things, people will continue to put um, units up for rent um, and they will continue to build more homes. Why? Because there's still going to be money in it. There's still going to be money in it. It is a policy that has worked. Now, it is not um, either like the final policy. The best policy is instead of trying to negotiate with these tyrants um, and these monsters out here who are literally trying to make people homeless um, by keeping them out of houses is to take that under public control and to build community housing or build public housing. Housing that is either owned by the community um, or housing that is owned by the government and by the, that extension, the rest of us, right? And in this country too, what happened with public housing? There was a time when it was seen as something that was an incredible achievement of American society. Look, 
We house people if they need it. We find ways to make sure that we don't have homeless in this country. Well, the right realize, hey, this is not a good look. Um, because if we can't extract as much value from these people, our bottom lines are going to suffer. And more importantly, um, for people who are employers, if we can't threaten people with destruction, if they stand up and fight against us, um, then this is a problem. So what happened with public housing in this country? This is why it has such a negative connotation with most people. Public housing became poor quality, right? Because that was disinvented in, disinvested in and punitive, right? And there's a lot of people who've done a lot of work looking at what happened um, during the neoliberal turn in this country at what happened to public housing, right? People were constantly being inspected. They didn't have this kind of freedom. They didn't have personal autonomy. Um, they had, they were over-policed, right? And why was that? It wasn't because there were social problems that needed to be dealt with. Um, it was because they wanted to sort of threaten, harass, and, and harass people, right? And the Democratic Party, as we know, ends up participating in that same kind of system. Um, and that really um, damaged uh, public housing in this country. But you look, there are multiple other models. Um, I know we might talk about Germany in a second, so I won't go in there. Um, but look at Vienna, right? Vienna is a country that has had a hundred year project um, to deal with the housing crisis, right? Um, and this is something where, you know, the vast majority of people in Vienna live in what's called public housing. It's something that's relative to your income, what you are paying. So it's a much different system than ours where people are sort of selecting based, oh, I'm going to get into my wealthy neighborhood and sort of um, wall myself off from the rest of the society. No, you can be living next to, um, you know, somebody who makes far more or far less than you in those kind of systems. And it works. People like it. Um, and you are able to do all sorts of incredible things. Like there's bike cities, right? Areas where, you know, there's, you don't have a need to have a car ownership, right? There might be a vehicle that's rented out by the people who are living in, in, the, in the unit uh, that's sort of collectively owned. But for the most part, you can get around um, using a bike, right? And the, just like the possibilities are endless if you take control of these kind of things. So yeah, in the short term, rent control 100% works. And anyone who continues to make this argument that it doesn't is just straight up lying or they're ignorant. Um, but more importantly than not, we need to be building public housing because dealing with these kind of tyrants, they actually will um, make kind of sacrifices. Again, not because economics forced them to, because they're sore losers. And they know that they can wait out these kind of waves because you know, they can wait out something for four or five years, right? Because that's sort of what the cycle has to be on these kind of things. When you have spineless liberal politicians who say, oh man, I heard from a developer that they're scared of doing this. So yeah, we're actually going to walk back all of our promises and policies that we've campaigned on, right? Very exactly. easy game. And it, it, that's a, a lesson that I think the rich have learned in this country. I mean, exactly. That's why I you know included that little bit with the Uber Lyft thing, because that is, you know, the this you know chosen executive of the people deciding you know what you guys are wrong i'm conferring with the business guys over here the people who are trying to suck up profit to pay back their investors for their provision of things like and that, that's why just it's so so perverse about this like it'd be one thing if like it was like cabbies and they were all unionized right like no this th these companies are operating at losses, but they're expecting to pay back the worst people on the planet. Like the people that are like, when we talk about like tech, like what are we talking about when we're talking about like the tech executives that are ruining the world? It's these guys. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, they, and I think like what's frustrating is the alternative seems so uh, available. Um, you know, I mean, not just, you know, here this Germany's so, ruling social democratic party is set to propose a three-year rent break across the country, but you know, also, um, St. Paul, uh, of course, passed their own. Um, but the, the actual more affirmative thing of like state produced housing, it's very easy for me in New York 
with this experience I've had here, because they have lotteries here. I've never, uh, I've never mm. actually um, uh, uh, joined one, but I know people who do. And like, that seems like such a better, you go into a lottery for a housing that you can afford, but that the state actually provides at a decent level, not just like completely like screwing people. I think people would way prefer that than dealing with these brokers. And I, 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 it's hard for me to generalize too much um, from New York um, to, but I, my sense is that other areas are becoming more like New York than the other way around or than the other way. And I don't think anybody likes to deal with real estate brokers. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe oh, yeah. I'm wrong. I mean, no. And, and the reality about the housing crisis in this country, as I say time and time again, despite um, what those on the reactionary right uh, will say is like, well, if you don't like the cost of housing, just move somewhere else, right? Well, um, as you noted earlier, you know where the housing crisis is getting worse by the day? States like Texas and New York, right? Sorry, Texas and Florida, um, where like people have like probably not for the political reasons that the right wingers say, but solely for economic reasons. Oh, well, I'll move somewhere where the cost of living is a little bit less. Well, guess what? Um, It moves very fast because... Uh, it goes up really fast because then you have, you know, high demand, um, low stock of housing. And then, hell, you come to a place. I don't know what the situation is like in Florida, but you come to a place like Texas where you have very little to no uh, rental protections, um, you know, and your life can be a nightmare. I mean, you can get um, a rent increase, 700 800 900 dollars. Um, and then what are you supposed to do? Where are you supposed to go? The, the rents in Austin in the past uh, 12, 13 years um, have skyrocketed in, in a way that is just so frightening when you see what like a one bedroom apartment might have cost in the 2010s versus what it cost in 2023. Um, and the realization that the vast majority of people cannot survive um, and, and pay to live in the city. What does that mean? People have to go further and further and further out. And then you get uh, the problem of like all these small towns now around Austin are becoming unaffordable and Places that weren't designed um, to be major cities or major population hubs are now dealing with crisis like water, right? Um, in a place, you know, where it gets really hot, we experience droughts, right? You get people moving into small towns in, in mass because they can no longer survive in Austin because you have this kind of landlord class, you have this property owner class that has been refusing um, to allow um you know, the kind of expansions that are are necessary, not to mention the problem of the state government here, which will wage war on any kind of progressive policy that's passed on the municipal level. I mean, it's, it's a real nightmare. Um, And I think the role of, of of socialists is not to fall um, for this kind of Yimby stuff, right? Which again, like, it's not that we disagree, for example, that, yeah, there's definitely going to have to be zoning reform. Um, but remember that, like, you know, there are, that these guys are not your friends and a lot of them are fairly nefarious actors who are celebrating the fact that a lot of progressives have sort of embraced free market economics on these kind of things instead of directing their ire and their frustration at the actual class that is responsible for this. Kind because the implicit message there just to you know really lower it down to like 144 P is the government made this problem and it's just in the way. And if you just let the yeah. private developers cook, then they will. And like, I gotta say, like, it's so jaded. There's like this new giant tower in downtown Brooklyn, like Tower of Mordor style <laughs> skyscraper. And you know, I, I I've come from North Dakota. I like tall buildings, um, but I'm so jaded about it because 
I saw the floor plan for one of those things and it is tiny as hell. It's tiny as hell and it's super expensive. And that's who we're partnering with is people who want, like, like I don't trust, like, man, like it's, it's really, these developers, like you said, they're not like partners (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. in this sort of thing. And it's wild to me that even people who can afford like 5k rent in New York city, like what they'll put up with. Well, what's what's that new neighborhood for like the ultra rich that they built in Manhattan, um, where this like kind of freaky like neo modern architecture? You know what I'm talking about? Lower like Manhattan the wealth, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, but no, but it's like a neighborhood. They built like a huge building, and all I'm saying is like, no, Matt, it's like a not an old school neighborhood. It's like a new thing. Come on, okay. you gotta go outside of Brooklyn every once in a while. Yeah, no, I don't city. know. Um, New York neighborhood. I'm forgetting it right now, and it's, it's sort of embarrassing um, to forget it because it's like a it's a buzzy word. Anyway, that hasn't uh, that hasn't dropped housing costs in New York City, right? Right. New housing for billionaire tech guys has not um, <laughs> lowered the cost of living in in New York City for people. That is yeah. a fallacy through and through. And like, I gotta say, like. <laughs> The the type of yeah I don't know I don't want to get too distracted on New York uh, I have no idea what you're talking about though I'll find it for you later I mean like it, it's it's something that you should know and I should probably know <laughs> too but it's fine let's not get distracted on it um, is there anything else we've got to say on the housing no um, just like look generally speaking like yeah man rezone that shit but let's stop pretending like that isn't being used um, by for cynical ants. I mean, mm-hmm. that's all I have to say. Yeah. And I will just say as a general thing too, like, you know, we do these kind of things on the program a lot, right? Where you see things that are happening um, at like, uh, you know, Hudson Yards, by the way, is. Okay. Is the, right. Yeah. Yeah. Is the neighborhood that I'm thinking of. Um, anyway, um, whatever. Um we do this on this program. We look at some of the freakouts that are happening at school boards. We look at some of the freakouts that are happening in, in city council meetings, right? And um, I, I have seen this kind of very frightening, like anti-democratic sentiment come up amongst even people on the left with these kind of things. Because what should shock you and frustrate you about these things is what people are saying, what they're mobilized and organized to do and say, right? The opinions that they're expressing, what they're trying to push on society, not the fact that people might be engaged in local politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and one thing that comes out of like the the nimby yimby kind of thing is that like oh the people who are participating in local democracy are like that, right? Um, you know, obviously the idea is that like you know the people who get to spend a lot of time at zoning meetings are people who have one like a tremendous financial vested interest um, and a lot of time to be able to do that. I get where that like where it comes from, but don't for a second start saying that you know we should you know these things should be sort of closed off or that you know that that these the, the, these kind of uh, openings for politics for people to be engaged in politics are bad um because frankly that is the kind of thing that we desperately need to be doing much more of on our side yeah. um so yeah i mean that's a, that's the whole thing is um this is just over the people's heads um mm-hmm. Well, folks, we're going to go over the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning. We're going to be taking your calls and questions. You can leave us a voicemail at 1940-289-7234. Again, five bucks a month. Um, you sign up, help Matt and I continue doing the show, patreon.com slash left reckoning. We're going to be jumping into something um, uh, that is, you know, a little bit of a hot discussion. And I think it's it's an important one. I think we're going to do that over in the post game. 
um, so that y'all can engage and, and, and we can sort of say what we think about it. Uh, but we're going to talk about this uh, Cornell West Bernie Sanders um, thing that's going on. For people who don't know, Bernie Sanders basically, you know, implied that he doesn't think that Cornell West um, should be running. And for a certain section of, of progressive who sort of sees themselves as the line between the crazies um, and the real serious people, I've been having a field day with it. And Matt and I are about to uh, maybe set the record straight on that. So come join us, patreon.com slash left reckon. We'll be talking about that and much, much more. Thanks everybody for joining us this week and we'll see you soon. Peace.